Well, I remember I was going into my second year at Texas A&M University. There it is, we got a couple of Aggies in, gotta get the cult going. Uh, I was going into my second year at Texas A&M and I was so, so excited. I was excited to be moving into an apartment for the very first time, but more than that, I was excited to be moving in with two of the best friends uh, that I'd ever had. Uh, I'd known these guys for a long time, and we got along well together. We hung out inside of class and, and outside of class, and we thought it would be the best of ideas to move in together. <laughs> I don't know if you know this about moving in together with somebody, but you start to learn a couple of things about them that you didn't quite know before, uh, and new conflicts and new uh, personality differences start to arise. Let me explain what I mean by that. There were two of my roommates in particular who had very different uh, personalities, very different ideas of how the apartment should be run on a daily basis. One of them uh, was a very type A person. Maybe you're like this. He was waking up at, at six in the morning every day. He never missed a meal, never missed a class, always got things done on time. He wanted the, the common areas, the kitchen and the living room to be spick and span uh, every second of the day. And then my other roommate, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> was a bit, just a bit, of a slob. <laughs> he was the kind of guy who like, let the dishes soak in the sink, you know what I'm talking about, uh, instead of cleaning them. He was the guy who kind of left his, his work, his trash, all over the common area in his room. Oh, I could not see the floor of his room for the better part of the semester. It was terrifying, actually. Um, don't ask me about the smells that came out of it, but uh, he would, would go to bed at like four in the morning uh, and then wake up at two in the afternoon for class, if he even went to class. And eventually, uh, the two of these roommates that I had, their, their conflicting personalities, they started to butt heads a lot, right? And, and the way this conflict would kind of manifest practically was in the conversations that they had with one another. And more than this conflict would manifest in the conversations they had with one another, they would manifest in the conversations that both of them had with me as the third roommate. I somehow got assigned the role as like the mediator of, of this situation, so both of them would come and ask me questions about how awful the other person was to live with and deal with as a roommate, as a friend, and, and eventually what all those questions did to me is they left me with a profound sense of anxiety. I didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. I didn't want to take anybody's side and alienate somebody else, cause some kind of collateral damage in these relationships that I loved. And eventually, I kind of felt a lack of, of clarity in the situation, a lack of control in the situation. And so my solution to that, <laughs> wouldn't recommend it, is I just started to depart from the apartment altogether. I would do my work uh, for the most part outside of the apartment. I would go to like class or on campus or in a coffee shop or something just to avoid the tension of that space and the anxiety of that space. I bring up that story for us this morning, not to like set a low tone for the morning, but just to open up a space of, of honesty and transparency where we can all say, we've been there. We've been there. We've all got people in our lives, situations, circumstances, season in our lives that have left us feeling rather anxious. You know, as a church family, we're moving into a series, a new teaching series that we're calling Me, You, and My Anxiety. And the heart behind the series, the thought behind this series is this. It's kind of interesting. You know, uh, relationships, the complex dynamics between you and me are often the most prevalent and consistent causes of the anxiety that we feel. Researchers have studied this and it's amazing what they've found. They've found that it's not 
the things we think that make us anxious that actually make us anxious. It's not the tasks that we constantly have to take care of that make us anxious, nor is it the places we always have to be in, in a society where the, the pace is so rushed and, and filled with what's coming next that make us anxious. It's actually uh, the personal relationships we have. It, it's people in our lives who put us into problems, put us into predicaments, put us into corners time and time again and make us feel anxious. And so what we're going to do as a church family over the next couple of weeks is try to speak into anxiety just a, a little bit more generally, but also into a very specific relational anxiety that involves the complex dynamics between you and me. And the way that we're going to do that is by diving into the scriptures, into the witness, uh, the model and example of Jesus, and try to find uh, clarity uh, rather than control over the situation. Because something that we should know, something about ourselves in terms of the, the relational anxiety, the dynamic of it all, just a, a piece that we bring to this conversation as Christians in particular is this thing called sin. Kind of underneath all of our conflicting personalities, kind of underneath all of the conflicts that we have with one another is our own sinful nature. And, and to define sin for us this morning, sin is honestly just the imposition of ourselves, a, a desire for control that ends up causing conflict and anxiety. Right, where, where one person butts head with, the, with another person and both people can't quite have their way. And so, so the conflict that ensues between them is what makes us anxious all the time. And, and it might not even be the conflict itself, but just the, the thought of conflict, right? The potential conflict on the horizon that makes us anxious. And so we try to avoid people altogether and that's a different kind of anxiety. But, but it's anxiety just the same in the, in the complex dynamics between you and me. And we're going to approach that with, with this story this morning, the story of an encounter between Jesus and two groups of people. Two groups of people who, in their own right, had a lot of anxiety shared between them. It's a really complex social and political situation between the Roman leaders of Jesus' day, the leaders of the state on one hand, and these spiritual leaders of Jesus' day, the, the Pharisees, the leaders of the temple, on the other and why there was so much conflict, why there was so much anxiety between these two groups of people is because the Romans, uh, kind of through a series of military conquests and campaigns, had, had taken over the land of Judea, uh, the land that had been previously occupied by the Jewish community, the land that they thought had been given to them by God. And not only had the Romans taken over the land that was occupied by the Jewish people, they started to kind of become the political and the social oppressors of that community. They would impose uh, taxes on the Jewish people. They demanded that worship and honor and reverence be paid to the, to the ruler of the Roman Empire, whose name was Caesar. And that was a problem for the Jewish people, not only because they weren't quite a fan of being socially and politically oppressed, that's never fun, uh, but also because the guy Caesar himself had a bit of a God complex. See, the reason that Caesar thought uh, taxes were being paid to him, it wasn't just to take care of the business of the empire. It wasn't just to take care of the roads or to take care of the aqueducts or to take care of the army or to take care of that weird community bath situation they had going on back in the day. The reason that Caesar thought that taxes should be paid to him was to kind of satisfy his own ego, satisfy his own sense of self-importance, and confirm his suspicion that he was a god among men. Now, this is a problem for the Jewish community because they already have a god, a god who is most certainly not a man. They have one god, and his name is Yahweh. 
And so the thought for, for the Jewish people to pay worship, to pay homage, to pay reverence to a man who thought he was a god, they had a word for this. It's called blasphemy. Blasphemy would be a, a crime against the true God, Yahweh, by worshiping a false god, even a person. And the punishment for this crime, blasphemy, in the Jewish community was one of two things. It was either a physical exile from this community saying, hey, you are no longer a part of us. You do not belong here anymore. Or it was a physical punishment from that community, kind of uh, persecution or torture, or even to the point of stoning somebody for the crime they committed. And it's all of this social and political tension, all of this anxiety in the relationship in some sense between uh, the, the state and, and the religious people that is imposed upon Jesus by the Pharisees through a very difficult question. The question of whether or not they should in fact pay taxes to a Caesar who, who they thought was a, a illegitimate ruler and overlord and oppressor of the Jewish people. And it's the way that Jesus approaches this question, the way that Jesus answers this question that can actually give some of us a, a model and an example to follow in how we can approach the, the complex dynamics of our own anxiety. That there are two incredible things that Jesus is going to do on his way to answering this question, and the first of which is he is going to seek clarity where it needs to be sought. He is going to seek clarity where it needs to be sought. The Pharisees ask Jesus a question. They say, Jesus, is it lawful uh, or is it against our law to pay taxes to the Roman emperor or not? Uh, and then Jesus answers the question. He says, okay, uh, whose face and name are these? And before we dig into that a little bit, we have to talk about the dynamic of, of the question the Pharisees ask Jesus just for a moment. Because there's a very sneaky way that the Pharisees ask Jesus this question. They, they kind of do this weird turn of phrase with two words, our law. They asked Jesus, is it against our law to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And the problem with this turn of phrase is that our law could be referring to one of two laws in this situation. It could be referring to uh, the, the state law on the one hand or the religious law on the other hand. And the idea here from the Pharisees is, is to trap Jesus in his own words in a way that eventually leads him to his ultimate demise and doom. Right? Because if Jesus says, uh, yes, it, it, it is against our law, then the, the Romans come at him. But uh, if he says, no, it's not against the law, then, then the spiritual people come at him. There's really no way out of this situation for Jesus. He is meant to be trapped in a corner. But he does an incredible thing. He seeks clarity where it needs to be sought. He asks them, okay, whose face and name are these on the coin that you're using to pay taxes to Caesar? And before we talk about the significance of of what Jesus is saying here, I just wanna talk for a moment about the significance of what Jesus is doing here by asking a really good question. He's asking a question of, of clarity from the Pharisees. Clarity from the Pharisees, that's fun to say. Uh, I don't know. He's asking a question of clarity from the Pharisees. He's trying to get uh, a little bit of room to breathe, honestly a little bit of room to breathe, a little bit of room to carefully evaluate and discern the lie that they are trying to trap him in. And it's in this room to breathe, in the question that he asks, that he's kind of able to set himself up a little better for the solution that is to come because he's, he's trying to identify two things. He's trying to identify the lie where it is, but also the truth where it can be found. And it's in his just patience and even asking a question that allows him to get there. 
And the way that this, uh, we can think about this as a model, an example for us, just as Christian people, is, is simply this. When we are anxious, when we find ourselves in a bit of relational anxiety, it is so, so important to be mindful of the kinds of questions that we ask. The kinds of questions we ask ourselves, the kinds of questions we ask other people, ask God, or that other people ask to us, because if we ask uh, good questions, then those questions can actually lead us maybe to some answers, to some answers, to some peace uh, or consolation in the meantime, even if we don't have those answers. Uh, but if we ask a bad question, if we get in a cycle of asking ourselves bad questions in the midst of our anxiety, then what that does, uh, and you've felt this too, is it just leads to more and more anxiety. And so the question for us kind of remains, well, what constitutes a good question when we're anxious? A good question to ask when we are anxious is this. It is a question that pursues clarity instead of control. A good question to ask when you find yourself anxious is a question that pursues clarity instead of control. Just compare for a moment with me the, the, the questions that the Pharisees ask versus the question that Jesus asks. When, when the Pharisees ask Jesus a question, it's not really a question, is it? Right? There, there's a, a question kind of on the surface, but underneath the surface, there are just layers and layers of assumptions and assertions and accusations and that social and political baggage that they're bringing to the conversation. They don't really want uh, to know if Jesus can come up with an answer to this question. They just want control over Jesus. They want to put him into a corner. They want to feel themselves like they are, are powerful and, and righteous because it turns out Caesar isn't the only one making the Pharisees anxious, right? Part of the reason why the Pharisees ask Jesus this question is because Jesus is making the Pharisees anxious. Because Jesus, kind of like Caesar, has actually made some claims to self-divinity. He's made some claims to be a God among men, to be a God as man in the flesh. And, and the Pharisees kind of seeing this as a crime against God, as, as blasphemy, they're trying to trip and trap Jesus in his words in a way that ultimately, again, leads to his demise and doom. Right? And so Jesus is, is seeking clarity where it needs to be sought. He's asking a, a better question, a, a question that uh, pursues clarity and wants information more than it wants to be right and in charge. Right? It's, it's a really humble question when you kind of think about it. He's not trying to assert himself over the room. He's just trying to actually find an answer to the anxiety in the room, the anxiety between the, the state on the one hand and the, and the spiritual leaders on the other. And it's because Jesus asks a really good and clarifying question that he's able to, to make the second incredible move in this conversation. He's not only going to seek clarity where it needs to be sought, he's going to speak clarity where it needs to be spoken. He's going to speak clarity where it needs to be spoken. The people, they bring him the, the coin. They say it's the emperor's face and name on the coin. And so Jesus says to them, okay, if it's Caesar's face on Caesar's coin and you're paying a tax to Caesar, then go ahead and give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. Now, as Christians, as people who have heard these words from Jesus probably a couple of times, it's really easy to let the weight and the power of them in this context to kind of get lost on us. 
But let's remember to whom Jesus is speaking. This question of paying taxes to Caesar is quite possibly one of the most, if not the most, complex social and political questions, one of the most anxiety-producing questions that the Jews have been asking for hundreds and hundreds of years in exile. And Jesus does a, a beautiful thing. He actually provides a pretty satisfactory answer to the question in a way that blows everybody's minds. How does he do that? He says, okay, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. In other words, Caesar thinks he's a God. We all know he's not really a God. He's just a man. The man is just a man. The coin, it's just a coin. The face, it's just a face. So go ahead, give the man what he wants. Let the man think what the man wants to think. But when it comes to God, when it comes to what belongs to him, that's your worship, your devotion, your heart, and your praise, make sure that that goes in the right place where it belongs because you don't belong to Caesar. You belong to God. You don't belong to your anxiety or what's causing you anxiety. You belong to the God who made you and loves you. Jesus does all this in, in a pretty straightforward way. He does it by speaking the clarity when it needs to be spoken through the power and the wisdom of the spoken word through the power and the wisdom of the spoken word. You know, there are a couple of ways that we can think about the word of God as Christians. There are a couple of ways that God chooses to reveal himself in his word to us throughout history. Uh, and the first way, the most important way, is through the personal word. That's Jesus. The personal word, the incarnate word, the word made flesh, as John chapter 1 says for us, uh, this is the way that God reveals his power, his promise, and his purpose in human flesh so that all the world can see his character. And there's a second way that God chooses to reveal himself, uh, one that maybe we're a little bit more familiar with. It's the written word. That's kind of what comes to our mind most clearly when we hear the word, word. It's the written word, scripture. The Old Testament and the New Testament that all bear witness to the personal word, the word made flesh, Jesus. But there's a third form of the word of God, one that often kind of slips our minds, that is actually the most frequently used way that God loves to speak into a battered and broken world. And that is the spoken word. The spoken word is, is kind of this. It's, it's the way that a person, whether that's a pastor or a preacher in a pulpit or not, uh, points other people back to Jesus using the, the words of Jesus in Scripture so that they can have peace and comfort and consolation where it needs to be. I'll give you a couple of examples of this. When you find yourself at the end of a church service, hopefully feeling filled on the inside, when you can breathe a sigh of relief after you hear a, a song that we sing or we pray a prayer that we do or, or maybe the message is a blessing to you and you have a sense of confidence and assurance about what God says about you and for you. That is the power of the spoken word at work. That's the power of you as brothers and sisters mutually encouraging one another in your faith. Right, when, when you're driving down the highway and you've had a rough day and you turn on the radio and you hear that song again and there's just a wave of calm that kind of crashes over you, that is the power of the spoken word at God uh, at, at work. It's, it's someone speaking truth and life over you. And the reason why the spoken word is so powerful and the reason there's so much wisdom in it is not because we are speaking. 
It is because the Spirit of God is speaking to us and through us. Uh, The same Spirit that was pleased to dwell in the personal word, Jesus, the same Spirit that animated, that inspired the written word of Scripture is the same Spirit that now lives in you as God's children to, to be a blessing to other people so that you can go out and encourage one another where there needs to be encouragement so that you can actually be agents of the solution to anxiety and announce to other people the peace that has been given to you in Jesus. But for as powerful as the spoken word is, and for as much wisdom as there is in the spoken word, there's kind of a double-edged sword to it. Because if we as God's people, if we as the people who have been called to speak on his behalf choose not to speak, and rather to stay silent, there is nobody else who's going to take up that job description. If we do not speak where God has called us to speak, you and me to speak, then nobody else will. And that should be kind of an anxious thought for some of us because uh, what comes out of that situation, kind of a silence from God, is just more of that anxiety we started with in the first place. It's all that conflict, all that sin, all those those heads butting together, fighting for control that we just don't seem to have, for clarity that we just don't seem to have. And there is always, always collateral damage in that conflict. Just look at the example of Scripture. Look at the way that the Gospel of Matthew actually ends. It's not exactly pretty for Jesus. Because it's the anxiety of the Pharisees towards Jesus. It's their... uh, unwillingness, their rejection of his message to receive the clarity that he offers them about who he is and what he's going to do that leaves them to to ask question after question, to put him into corner after corner, to try and trap him again and again until they put him in the eventual corner, the eventual torture of the cross. And it's on the cross where Jesus dies a criminal's death that he does not deserve at the hands of anxious people. Not that anxiety itself is the problem, but that these people were so anxious, so desperate for control that they projected it uh, unjustly on the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And and in the cross itself, it's not exactly a clear picture when you think about it. The, The cross itself, it's ugly and it's brutal and it's messy, and especially for Jesus, it is just the epitome of injustice. There's no clarity there. There's no sense of control there. But three days after Jesus dies on the cross, he is raised from the grave. And there is this new sense of clarity that is given to all of us. Because when Jesus is raised from the dead, when he is raised and vindicated by the Father, he announces a message to all of the people, uh, you and me included, whose sin put him on the cross. And this is that message. You, yourself, have no reason to be anxious anymore. Why? Because the most important relationship that you could ever have, the relationship between you and your father, the one who made you, the one who loves you, is now restored and reconciled because of me, because of my blood shed for you on the cross that you put me on. You know, I think about the person of Caesar, the crazy guy that he was, Caesar did a a lot of crazy things. One of the craziest things Caesar ever did was was put his face on a coin. 
and think that by putting his image and likeness on a coin and then circulating just that coin around the Roman Empire that eventually his name would be known to the ends of the earth. To inflate that self-importance, to inflate that, that assurance in his mind that he was a God among men. But for as crazy as Caesar was, there is an almighty God who has put his image his divine image, his divine likeness on you in Christ Jesus. And you now bear his name, you belong to him, so you can go out and proclaim his victory over our sin, over our anxiety, and announce to other people, give them peace and comfort and consolation, and let them know there is no reason to be anxious anymore. There, to be clear, might still be reasons and, and situations for us to be kind of be, be anxious in our earthly relationships, but there is one relationship. There is one relationship that never need cause you anxiety, and that is the only one that matters. The one between you and your heavenly Father. Amen. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for being so much bigger than our anxiety. We thank you for being so much bigger than every fear that we have, every concern that we carry with us into today. By the power of your spirit, by the power of your spoken word, we, may we be free from that anxiety this week. Be with us in our relationships, wherever they are, with our family, with our friends, with our coworkers. May we look to see your truth and seek clarity where it needs to be sought and speak clarity where it needs to be spoken and be a blessing to others. Lord, in your mercy. Gracious God, we pray for all of those who this morning are in the midst of real anxiety and suffering. Today we pray especially for the family of Dolores, for Patricia, Joyce, Brian, James, and Angie. We also make special mention this morning of all of those who have been afflicted one way or another in the wake of Hurricane Ian this week. Let your hand of comfort be over them. Let your spirit speak over them. Give them peace, God. Lord, in your mercy. Almighty God, we thank you for the joy that comes in this freedom that you give us. We thank you for the joy that we can be a blessing to others. Help us to, to continue our, our habit of worship as we go into this week, God. Let your name continue to be magnified. Let us know that we belong to you. We ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus, Lord, in your mercy. Everything else, God, that's in our hearts and on our minds this morning, we bring to you in the words that your son, Jesus, taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen.